Every day is a brand new adventure. So let's embark on this journey together. City News 570 presents Kitchener Today. Welcome to Kitchener Today with James, Sebastian, Scott on City News 570. I'm filling in this afternoon. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us on the show today. Interesting lineup that was given to me this afternoon. A lineup that was pre-planned and then I had to step in here last minute. So we'll do the best that we can with, with what we have here. Uh, because that w- that's what we do here, right? Doesn't matter what we have lined up. We make we we make good radio, and we talk to important people. And speaking about some of those important people on the show today, uh, right now, uh, this next segment that we're going to do, uh, we'll talk to Susan Nalin, associate professor of history at Wilfrid Laurier University, about 1950 murals that spark tough co- uh, questions around Indigenous people and their place. In Waterloo Region's history, we'll get going with that in just a few moments. At twelve thirty, we'll talk to Wendy Campbell from the Food Bank of Waterloo Region about the Give Thirty campaign, as well as Mifra Abid uh, from the Coalition of Muslim Women (KW). At one o'clock, Helen Fishburne, the CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association of Waterloo Wellington, will join us to talk about the power of routines. At one thirty, we'll have a discussion about could Vladimir Putin be ousted over his Ukraine invasion, and we'll talk to Lisa McIntosh-Sundstrom, a professor of political science at the University of British Columbia, about that conversation at 1.30. But as I said, right now on the show, we have Susan Nalen joining us to talk about these 1950s murals that spark tough questions around our Indigenous people and their place in our history here in the region of Waterloo. Susan, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, you're, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, Susan, when it comes to these paintings that uh, we have or, or these murals that we have that spark those tough conversations, um, would you be able to just kind of go into detail about what each uh, mural kind of represents uh, and, and what are some of those tough questions that they represent as well? Well, sure. Maybe I'll, I'll tell you a, a little bit about uh, these these uh, murals. Um, it's a sort of timely story, given that that you know, uh, in Canada today, not just regionally, but like nationally, um, you know, we're really considering what uh, public displays of heritage or uh, you know stories about history um, what they mean in in today's context. So when you see, see things that are imagining what a particular history was like, but that are, you know, 70 years old now, um, it may not mesh with our current understandings. And for some, it might be quite hurtful, especially if the story being told doesn't include them. So 
there were a series of murals that were actually commissioned by uh, Waterloo Trust and Savings Company, which eventually merged with Canada Trust, and now I think it's part of TD Trust, but it was sort of a local financial institution. They commissioned these murals by, um, they were painted by Selwyn Dudney uh, in 1950. Um, and you know there were they're quite large. There were uh, six panels, um, but but five of them really display the history of the region. But you know a particular narrative of the history of the region, one that tells a settler story framed as I don't know like the march of resettlement, industry, progress, capitalism. Not an unexpected story given they were you know commissioned by a financial institution. So they were on. Um, they were in first put on display, I guess, in in the in the uh, Waterloo Trust and Savings Company building, um, where they stayed until 1993, when they were donated to the region, and they were reinstalled into the the region of Waterloo's administrative headquarters um, cafeteria, and and that's where they've been uh, until about a year a year and a bit ago, when they were removed from from public display. So they depict uh, a story of this region, of, of the, the Tri-Cities, um, uh, uh, that really is not particularly inclusive when we try and understand what history is today, uh, and that was especially so for uh, Indigenous peoples. There is, um, the, the very first panel uh, does depict Indigenous, uh, two Indigenous persons in a canoe, um, in, in a heavily wooded area, um, but most of the other panels uh, have, you know, readily identifiable uh, members of uh, uh, society, uh, you know, where people would recognize them, you know, we have streets named after them, um, you know, they depict the Mennonite uh, story of, of arrival and living on the land, um, building, you know, not only financial institutions, but you know the story of hydro, uh, the story of St. Jerome's College, um, that sorts of thing uh, in the in the other panels. Um, but it it got a group of us and in partnership with the region of Waterloo and with Ken Sealing Waterloo region Regional Museum, um, a couple of academics, um, myself, I'm a historian at at Laurier, um, but also Dr. Einer Ketter. Um, uh, who uh, was formerly at uh, Uni University of Waterloo in, in the communications arts. Uh, she's now at, at UBC. Um, so a uh, couple of academics and myself and, and working in partnership with, with members of the museum um, and a team of, of student RAs thought about sort of researching materials and, and listening to a number of Indigenous constituents because we were particularly interested in how might we imagine or reimagine the history of the region of Waterloo or even the greater Grand River watershed area in a more inclusive way. Um, uh, and uh, so we started with uh, uh, listening to Indigenous constituents to better understand how we might rethink the historical narratives that are depicted uh, in the murals. So to kind of talk back to them, uh, so to speak, um, or use them as a jumping off place. Uh, so an Indigenous guest curator, uh, an Anishinaabe historian and artist, Emma Smith, and I did a number of interviews uh, to learn about how Indigenous perspectives on the past of this place might inform how we would understand 
history. And, you know, we ask people, what is your sense of history of the Grand River watershed? You know, what what would you tell the public? Um, because these were, it wasn't just that these were depictions of art, but they were public depictions, right? People like sat and ate their lunch and looked at a particular way of telling the story of of this place. Um, and so we we asked people like, what what's what was left out, or what would you add um, if you were creating like a historical timeline? Would that timeline be even linear? Would it be more circular? Would it be more seasonal? So um, uh, we we've we've had these interviews, and now we're proceeding to. Um, there will be an exhibit at uh, Ken Sealing Museum in the fall where these murals will will be uh, uh, available for, for viewing. But there will be, I don't know, probably an artistic intervention um, to get people to think more critically when they see these narratives displayed of whose story is being told, who's being left out. Um, how would our understandings of where we live today be enriched by better understanding um, histories that are often not told. When you had those conversations with uh, with people about what was missing and 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 what needs to be included, or or how we understand those depictions of of history, uh, what were what was some of the responses that you received when you asked that question? Well, it's so interesting. Uh, several people. So, like, just to give you an example, we talked to to Amy Smoke, one of the community organizers for the Land Back Camp. Um, not surprisingly, people reminded us, and and almost actually a few people started the story with a story about their relationship with the river, with the Grand River, and how it's changed over time. And in fact, this is an element depicted in the uh, the murals themselves. There's there's mills. There's depictions of you know trees. Uh, being cut down and and fields being opened up um, to to agriculture, um, and they sort of re- uh, reminded us of that indigenous peoples have been here for an awful long time, um, in their estimation, since the beginning of time. Um, uh, archaeologically, we know you can't create a new roundabout in this in the city without discovering an ancient indigenous. You know, past in this place, they're con- you know they're constantly constantly finding the remain uh, the remains and belongings of of, of former uh, um, villages. So um, many of us, many of them, reminded us of the human relationship with with the environment and how much that's changed. So it's not necessarily something that's at odds with all of the elements in the in the murals. It's just something that's not um, perhaps. Re-emphasized, and I, and I think the the article that that Catherine Thomas did um, just recently in the in the record, uh, you know, m- mentioned uh, one of the examples that came up through these interviews of uh, you know time almost repeating itself. If we consider indigenous presence on this land, often um, agriculturally based, uh, uh, the, using the three sisters, corn, beans, uh, and squash. Um, that there, there were sites locally that have always been farmed that were uh, continued to farm by other peoples as, as non-Indigenous peoples came and peopled this place as well. Um, uh, a great example that Dave Skeen, who's the co-director of White Owl, gave us was um, the Steckley Farm, which is near the uh, Huron Nature area uh, in town, uh, in Kitchener. Um, and how uh, the Steckley family, the 
Steckley has donated the the farm, which was a Mennonite farm, back to Indigenous peoples to grow plants that they had always grown even before it was a Mennonite farm. So it gives us a sense of quite a, a cyclical time, right? That the land has been farmed by people, but here we're reminded it, that it had been farmed by Indigenous peoples long before it was farmed by Mennonites. Um, and the murals depict two guys in a canoe going through the forest and not in, in you know, agricultural villages, which they would have been living uh, at the time. So it just makes you rethink the scale of history, perhaps even, that, that uh, there's a longer continuities with Indigenous peoples in the region today um, with the place, with me- for many of them, um, than murals uh, depict, you know, some sort of destiny that Indigenous peoples will be replaced or something by uh, non-Indigenous peoples. So it just reminds us of, of a shared history of relationship with, with the earth, with the waters. Um, that certainly came up in uh, what people were telling us. Um, the continuities with an Indigenous community here, uh, at, you know, viewing this region as a place that that had always been kind of a meeting place, a shared place where people come in. Um, a few people like uh, Jean Becker, who is the uh, uh, Director of Indigenous Initiatives at the University of Waterloo, she reminded us, you know, um, that, that many people come to, to the regions to attend, you know, school, to, to go to, you know, we have, we have multiple uh, universities in this area and colleges, um, and uh, to sort of finding community uh, in, in this place um, is, part, is a historical continuity, that, that narratives about progress and industry uh, of capitalism sometimes leave out and is not as inclusive for all the residents uh, who live in the region today. When you have, yeah, when you have uh, such a large history like our region does, uh, when it comes to uh, you know the, the indigenous people who were here before the settlers were, and and you know part of that history of, of indigenous people is left out. What what were some of the, the 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 reasons, I suppose, or some of the the thoughts that were kind of given about you know why on these six panels that that we leave out uh, you know a lot of the indigenous history and and, and only showed kind of the settler history on it yeah i mean i think it's the same reason many of our you know school textbooks have often left it out it's whose voice is is uh uh, is being listened to right and i think you know the region um was looking at these murals as you know this is the way we used to do things we didn't actually ask people you know is this kind of a respectful way of of uh reflecting your understanding of the history of the region. Um, and so I, in many respects, the murals are kind of a jumping off place to, to reimagine how, how do you talk about uh, a history that's more inclusive, either in, you know, what do you know about the past uh, uh, of this region, um, what kinds of sources we draw on um, to recreate or interpret that past. Right for a long time, it was it was settler sources. It was sort of uh, using Western conventions, uh, not necessarily um, understanding that you know fragments of the Carolean forest uh, is is a historical document to many Indigenous peoples. Right, it connects them to their long-standing relationship with with trees and forests. Um, so, 
yeah, I, I'm hoping the the exhibit uh, again. I think uh, Emma Smith is our guest curator is really um, going to come up with a uh, an interesting way of of engaging the public with different ways of of viewing these these representations of the past. I mean, they're murals are are very visual. They're they're very striking. Um, uh, do we need to be sort of coached to what questions could we be asking that weren't asked by that that artist who created this this representation of history? Susan, when is that exhibit uh, expected to open uh, at, at the uh, Ken Sealing uh, Regional Museum? It should be this fall. I think um, I think the the aim is. Um, uh, uh, late September or early October, I'm, I'm not certain, um, but it's in progress, certainly, that, that uh, we're, we're working on it now, but and, sometime this fall. Excellent. And, and when it comes to, uh, you know, how that exhibit is, is going to look, uh, kind of what is, what is the vision that uh, is being put forth to, to make that uh, exhibit a more inclusive exhibit to our history here in, in the region of Waterloo? Well, I'm afraid your 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 listeners will have to stay tuned. Um, that's uh, that's still in in flux. Um, but my understanding is that the murals themselves. It's, one of the questions we asked people was, you know, especially in light of schools being renamed or statues being taken down, we did ask people if it was in your control, what would you do with the murals? And no one said, oh, get rid of them, you know, throw them out. Most people said, you know, show them, and then get people to think about what's not there or how including something, some other stories might enrich the understanding of what's being represented there. Um, and so I think there, you know, uh, there are many ways to, to do that with a, 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 an exhibit that might combine digital. Um, we're hoping certainly there'll be excerpts from some of these interviews so people can really hear, hear directly from um, individuals, uh, their thoughts on what's missing and what's what could be added. So, yeah, I I can't comment explicitly <laughs> on what it's going to look like for sure, but uh, it's going to be exciting when it when it uh, when it opens. Well, Susan, uh, we really look forward to uh, season seeing that exhibit open up and, uh, and and for us to take a look at it. So, thanks so much for taking the time to join us to talk about not just the murals, but also uh, talking about the the exhibit that's set to open. Appreciate that. Okay, great. Thanks for your interest. Thanks so much, Bye-bye. Susan. Bye-bye. That was Susan Nalen, an associate professor of history at Wilfrid Laurier University, talking about uh, this exhibit that's set to open around the fall, she said, uh, about the history and, and the murals that were put together about a portion of our history. I, I don't want to say about our region's entire history because it doesn't represent our entire history. It represents, as Susan said, a settler's perspective of the region's history. So it'll be interesting to see how the feedback that they've received and the murals that are going to be on exhibit, uh, how that whole exhibit is going to come together to not just be an exhibit about, you know, these paintings that were painted back in the 1950s, but also on how you can make it a more inclusive exhibit for everyone to enjoy. And not to leave out the indigenous population, the, the indigenous people who are here before any settlers were.
So it'll be in, really interesting to see how that all comes together as, as the exhibit is set to take place in the fall. We have to head to a break, and then we'll come back. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. James Sebastian Scott filling in this afternoon. Thanks so much to Susan Nalen uh, joining us to talk about the expected exhibit that's set to open in the fall about those murals that we were talking about and how it is going to look. Uh, we'll just have to uh, we'll just have to see how that exhibit looks when it opens. Uh, Susan uh, saying they're still working on it. So it's uh, definitely something that uh, that we'd have to stay tuned for. So uh, it gave me a little bit of a Doug Ford answer, but that's okay. It's okay. Well, I'll have to just go check it out and uh, and and support that uh, that exhibit when it opens up at the Kensling Regional Museum. Uh, so my thanks to Susan Nealon for joining us for that conversation. And we're going to head to the news and then come back with more of Kitchener today on City News five seventy. Back to Kitchener today on City News 570. James Sebastian Scott filling in this afternoon. Thanks so much for taking the time to tune in to the show today. This next conversation is kind of twofold when it comes to what the Food Bank of Waterloo Region does and how the Food Bank of Waterloo Region is going to support. Uh, the Ramadan food drive uh, that's in collaboration with the Give 30 campaign. And joining us on the show today is Wendy Campbell, the CEO of the Food Bank of Waterloo Region, and Mifra Abid from the Coalition of Muslim Women KW. Uh, Mifra and Wendy, thanks so much for taking the time today. Appreciate you doing that. Thanks for having us. Great to talk to you. Yeah, hi. Thank you. Uh, so, Wendy, we'll start with you about uh, the Give 30 campaign, just to give our listeners a little bit of, of background on what the Give 30 campaign is all about and, uh, and, and how it's supporting the, the Ramadan food drive. Yeah, Give 30 was just a, a spark of an idea so many years ago. I think it was 2017 it started. And it was a way for community to come together during this time of year and specifically connected to Ramadan and looking at, you know, communities that were fasting and thinking about where where were the dollars going during that time period. So tallying up how much you would spend on lunch, how much you would spend on coffee during that fasting period, and what could we do with those dollars in the community to really come together in a different way to support our communities. And we know that Ramadan is so much about compassion and social solidarity and sharing and what a great way to connect such a, a 
a beautiful time of year with giving back to our communities. And so the Food Bank of Waterloo Region and the Cambridge Food Bank were one of the first food banks in the country, actually, to take part in the Give 30 campaign. And since the inception, um, the dollars have raised more than 90,000 meals for our communities. Uh, so, so Wendy, when it comes to the success of the Give Thirty campaign, how uh, how important is it to uh, you know uh, be able to use that that campaign, I guess, uh, uh, the, the strategy to to helping other parts of our community uh, who who might need some support or who are looking to do different things uh, to team up with the Food Bank of Waterloo Region. You know, this is such a great example of, of creativity and a, what was a fresh new idea and how that, that small little idea has grown to pretty much a global initiative. We know that the campaign is supporting so many communities across the country, um, and it's stretched even further than that. But it's just a great example of, of just one small thing that can make a difference and having you know, great conversations like this in our community about what the needs in our community and how everybody can be part of a bigger solution. We know that the needs in this community, that food security is becoming a challenge for so many in our community. We know that within our community food assistance network in Waterloo Region, there's more than 100 community programs that are working in partnership with the Food Bank of Waterloo Region and the Cambridge Food Bank um, to provide essential food services, whether it be meals or community food hampers or shelter and residential programming. And it's all of the pieces and all of those partnerships that come together that make, you know, our work so much easier, but it's the fundraising piece that really helps give us the security that we're going to be able to keep moving, that we're going to be able to purchase food, to coordinate different food drives to be able to transport food, to be able to store food. Uh, And it's the whole community coming together uh, and sharing, especially this time of year, uh, that's really going to make a difference. Uh, Mefra, when it comes to uh, the the Ramadan food drive uh, that, that is that you know uh, this whole campaign is is, is supporting, uh, how important is it is it for you uh, to kind of line up uh, you know the don- the donations that are being collected uh, with Ramadan, uh, knowing what Ramadan is all about? Uh, like Wendy mentioned uh, about being compassionate and 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 all those sorts of things that that Wendy mentioned. How important is it to connect those two things together? And and be able to partner up like this uh, to to uh, get some food uh, for the people who need it? Uh, first of all, I'd say we are really happy with this partnership because the food bank is such an important service in our community. And as you mentioned, Ramadan is all about sharing and compassion. And the idea behind this was that, you know, Muslims fast from dawn to dusk during the Ramadan. And we have the option, most people have the option of a nutritious meal at the end of the day. But however, uh, a lot of those, a lot of people in our communities don't have that option. So the idea was, how can we, you know, help those people? How help those communities? And uh, Give Thirty is also about community building because we have such amazing partners. We have such amazing uh, people who come forth from the community, whether it's politicians, uh, the police, uh, people from the police department, and other, you know, service providers and non nonprofit and and our charities who have come forward uh, to be part to become ambassadors of Give Thirty. So. Uh, our, our goal here is also to involve schools, you know, to let the students have these leadership roles in which they are, you know, understanding that there is a need in this community and they can do something to address that need, to collect donations in their own schools and donate that to the food bank. So there are a lot of things going on here. Uh, it's not just compassion. It's also community building. It's also developing leadership uh, roles in our youth. 
it's also building this network in which all of us are saying, we've got your back. We've got this together as, you know, as a, as a community, as, as one whole. So, so many components in Give30 that are, you know, so amazing. Uh, Mifra, when it, when it came to, uh, you know, you mentioned the partnership a little bit uh, in, in that last uh, answer there, but when, when it came to, uh, you know, trying to figure out what, what you would be able to do around Ramadan and, and, and be able to uh, create a partnership, uh, was it always obvious that, that the Food Bank of Waterloo Region was where you wanted to go with it? I think so, because uh, um, <laughs> it, they are actually, you know, fulfilling such an important need in the community. Um, and, you know, they've made so much, so many inroads in how addressing individual community requirements and needs, like, you know, for a lot of equity-seeking groups, and they're very open to uh, those conversations and how food can be made accessible to different uh, people, different uh, ethnicities, different backgrounds. So it is like a, a one stop, one stop for all people's needs. Um, and, and we're very happy that those needs are being recognized and they're being addressed by the food bank. And I just want to mention here that in the pandemic, uh, food insecurity has grown so much. Uh, it's actually imperative <laughs> uh, that we know we partner with uh, organizations like the food bank. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we, we are actually very proud of this uh, collaboration and, you know, really happy with it. And uh, Wendy, when it comes to uh, trying to, you know, uh, think about new ideas and fresh ideas on, on how, you know, you can get the messaging out about the food bank and what it does, uh, what, was this an obvious partnership for you as well when it comes to teaming up with uh, uh, the Coalition of Muslim Women, KW, and around the time of Ramadan as well, knowing, you know, the, the two organizations kind of go hand in hand with, with Ramadan and trying to give back to the community with the, with food? Yeah, definitely. And I loved what Mifra said about how, you know, we've got your back. And I think that, you know, that's sort of been the philosophy of our community food assistance network for so, so many years. It doesn't matter where you live in this community, whether you live in, in, in Cambridge and in Kitchener and Waterloo in our rural townships in Woolwich and Wilmot and North Dumfries, there are supports and services and everybody has access to a variety and a range of sorts of supports and services. And by working with different community partners, we've been working, um, you know, with the Muslim community for so many years, and they've helped us so much to understand different programs that we need to support, different ways we need to support different communities. We've changed how we distribute food. We've changed the types of food we bring into our inventory um, to make sure that everybody in this community is supported. So we do have your back. And no matter where you live in the community, you have access to a program, you have access to safe, healthy food, and you have access to confidential, you know, a really confidential, dignified way to be able to get the support you need for yourself and your family family. Um, and it's it's about the community. It doesn't matter how big or how small the support is. It's all of us working together to make sure uh, that we're able to ensure that no one goes hungry. Is is there a goal on, on how much food that you would like to collect when it comes to this food drive? Or, or is this just kind of uh, an open-ended thing for, for people to be able to support uh, around the time of Ramadan? That's a good question. I don't think we have a goal. Mifra, do we have a goal? <laughs> no, we don't. Uh, we just we want don't to have give, a goal. <laughs> we just want people to give what they can. Uh, it's hard for a lot of families now, even, you know, but whatever they can share is good. And that's what we, the message that we've been uh, sending out that, you know, um, just so you know, you don't have to have a lot 
to share with those who are underprivileged. So that's the whole idea. Give what you can and, you know, join the movement. And no pressure. <laughs> no pressure, exactly. Yeah, and and Wendy, when it comes to uh, what the food bank is looking for during these food drives, what are, what are the the main things that the food bank of Waterloo Region looks for when it comes to uh, getting some of these donations out uh, to, and collected in, in food drives and and things like that? Yeah. So right now, the most important thing is the financial donations. The complexities of the pandemic. The needs of our community partners have changed so much in the last few years. Uh, it's really dramatically changing how we operate, how we need to bring food in the building, the types of food we need to bring the food to the building. Um, and so financial donations really go a long way uh, to help us have the flexibility to be able to do food purchase, to be able to do, um, you know, specialized food drives for specific items, um, continue to have trucks on the road, be able to have that range range of fresh and frozen foods, which have dramatically increased in the last couple of years, really amazing quality food that, that is going out that we need to keep safe. So, um, yeah, so financial donations are the number one, uh, but food donations also important and still being accepted at grocery stores. There's a number of food drives that are happening in the community. You can check our website at thefoodbank.ca for the most needed food items. It changes on a fairly regular basis. I'm not even going to attempt to tell you what it is today because it probably changed this morning. Um, but take a look at what those most needed food items are. And if food is your focus, um, those are the things that we really need right now. Uh, Wendy and uh, Mifra, thanks so much for taking the time today to uh, join us to talk about this. I appreciate you doing that. Thank you. Thank you thanks, James. You. Take care. That was Wendy Campbell, uh, the CEO of the Food Bank of Water the Region, and Mifra Abid from the Coalition of Muslim Women KW talking about the Give 30 campaign and the Ramadan food drive uh, that is that is happening in our region. As we know, uh, Ramadan is being celebrated uh, beginning on Saturday. Uh, so this is a timely, timely partnership created by the Food Bank of Water the Region and the Coalition of Muslim Women KW around Ramadan. And uh, we all know, we all know that the Food Bank of Waterloo Region is always looking uh, for donations, and and whether it's monetary, whether it, whether it's food, uh, as Wendy said, you can go on their website and check out what the most needed food items are uh, when it comes to what you can donate. Uh, but she does say that the monetary donations are really uh, something that uh, is is impactful uh, because of the changes. Uh, to the operation, not just with partners, but within themselves as well uh, throughout the pandemic. Uh, we got Jody on the line. Jody, uh, good afternoon. Hi, I'm so glad they're they're doing stuff like that because I'm a low-income person myself, and I depend on food hampers sometimes from the Waterloo region and also from the Morgan Ave place. They do another place where they give food hampers. And uh, I also go to those uh, free meals sometimes at the soup kitchen in Kitchener and the one in Vineyard in Cambridge. And I'm so glad that they have those things and uh, that they're 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 doing a food drive. Um, I, I would encourage anybody to donate as much much as they can afford to donate to these places because they're 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 put their their donation will be put to good use. 
All right, Jody, uh, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to weigh in on that. I appreciate you doing that. Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely important with uh, with the needs of our community. That's for sure. Uh, and Jody mentioned it there as well in that call, just as men- uh, Wendy did as well. Uh, we're going to head to a break, and then we'll come back with more on Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. James Sebastian Scott filling in this afternoon. Joining me in studio today is producer Brittany. Hey, Britt. Oh, hey. How's it going? <laughs> I'm okay. How are you? Did you hear the latest Ford government goodie, pre-election goodie, I should say, that was hasn't been announced yet, but is oh, suspected to announced. be announced? Okay. I mean, we have sources saying this. Are we getting more money? Because we're getting money back for the stickers. Uh, No. Oh. Not physically money in our pockets. Because this, I mean, so a story about... He's getting more money. (laughs) God, I hope not. (laughs) Uh, When I was off, I I was off for the last two weeks because I have a newborn at home, all that sort of stuff. Everything's great on that front. I had to replace my license plate. And I'm going to tell you this straight up, and I hope no police officer is listening. I had an expired sticker since September, oh. and my plates were bubbling, so I had to get them replaced. But I never found the time to actually do it. So I took the t- when I was off, I took the time before my son was born to get my license plates renewed. And... Even though I had the license plates for longer than five years, the, what the warranty was on them, they still replaced them for free for me, and I didn't have to pay for a sticker. Nice. So literally, my trip to the DMV was zero dollars, just whatever it costs for me to get there in gas. Which, by the way, yeah, so not which, really zero dollars <laughs> is astronomical these days. But the pre-election goodie that I'm talking about is the speed limit on some 400 series highways is supposed to go to 110 kilometers per hour. Okay. Because like we need morons on the road already to be going faster. Listen, some people, they got the need for speed. Go to a track then. (laughs) They already don't use their signal lights. They already don't use their mirrors. How the hell are they going to get over when they don't use those two things by going 10 extra kilometers an hour? Well, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think it, it, make, it could be a good idea, increasing the speed limit. I think you're saying that because you have a heavy foot. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> See, Might I, save me from future speeding tickets. I Well, or I not. Mean, it's only 10 kilometers an hour, right? <laughs> but yeah, but I'm, come on, James, everybody knows. Right. Yeah. That everyone has a need for speed. <laughs> so true story. I, I'm from rural Manitoba, as everyone knows. I grew up on all kinds of machines that go way faster than I should have been riding at the time that I was riding them. And I, I've i always had the need for speed. Dirt bikes, snowmobiles. It's probably why my wife will not let me get any of those items because I'll probably kill myself on one of those. Yeah. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> well, that, and then true. you'll have your two young kids going, I right. want to go on that too. Well, yeah. I mean, I already told my, my uh, newborn that, you know, when it gets old enough, we're going to have dirt bikes. And I said, oh, my boy. wife's just going to have to deal with it. I, I, have to do, I have to do those things that I grew up doing with my son, right? See, with the daughter, it's a little bit different because 
her interests are different than what I think my son's interests are going to be. I don't know. He, he could have different interests than what I have. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But damn it, I'm going to try and get him on a dirt bike when he's, <laughs> when he's a little bit older. But I've always enjoyed going fast on, on some of these machines just because I had the freedom to do that, right? But in a car... When people already don't pay attention, I don't think this is a very good idea. I just don't. I just don't. Uh, we got Steve on the line. Steve, good afternoon. Hey, how you doing? Good, how are you? Not too bad. So you realize that it's been 110 for over a year now, right? Not legally, Steve. Yes, it has. They put it in a year ago as a trial, and they took all the data for a year before they announced it was going to be permanent. Well, on some... 400 series highway, sure, but not on every 400 series highway. And it's not going to be on every 400 series highways. No, but I, I still don't think it's, I still didn't think it was a good idea back then when they did the trial. Why is that a good idea? Well, they tried it and they proved that the speed isn't killing more people than going to regulars. Well, number one, nobody ever goes to regular anyways. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's a Very good true. point, Steve. You're right. Nobody does go under 10. So, I put it to 110, people now do 130. <laughs> Which makes it more dangerous, doesn't it? But they just proved in a year it didn't. Well, all right, Steve. I, you know what? I, I, think, I think we can... I, I, I think when we see the data, and hopefully they release that data about uh, the safety or anything like that, but my thoughts on it is that you know, we already deal with people who who don't pay attention on the road. So giving them oh. that extra leeway of, of kilometers per hour, I don't think it's a very good idea. Well, I, I'll be honest. Like, I, I lived in Calgary for years. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. And they've had the uh, school zones at 30 for years out there. Yeah. I found it more dangerous driving at 30 than I do at 100. And I, you may not understand that, but. When you're driving your car, you have a feel for speed a bit when you're driving. And I've been driving a long freaking time, unfortunately. To get my car to go 30, it, I'm watching the speedometer more, trying to keep it at 30, than I do when I'm driving 100. Yeah, you kind of know that sweet spot when you're on the highway, right? Yeah, or even when you're doing on an 80 road or a 50 road. Yeah, yeah. But the, because it drops down to 30, which is not normal anywhere except in those school zones i find my eyes are off the road more than mm. if they would have had it say at 40 or 50 so you're more distracted by trying to lower your speed than you are doing 100 I'm trying to keep it at a speed yeah. that is normal how's that yeah fair enough all right steve thanks so much for the call appreciate you doing that uh we got andre on the line andre good afternoon yes hi mrs sebastian this is my wife's favorite name <laughs> um <laughs> I've been wanting to talk about this for a long time. Sure. And uh, I, I, I think that uh, the first lane is 100. You get on, you get off, safe. The middle lane should be 110, 110, where you pretty much, you know, going 10 above. And then the third lane should be 120. Um, even, you know, 120, you, people can go, you know, 130 because it's the traffic flow, right? That's my opinion because it seems like everything from Europe is coming here, and it's a good thing as long that we change the road in consequence. In town, I totally agree with 40 and uh, with 50 uh, to, the, to, to the cameras. You know, my wife got nailed. I've been telling her for years, and she got nailed. I'm not happy. Uh, <laughs> but the cameras are out there, so please be careful, guys. 
All right, Andre, thanks so much for the call. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know how you enforce that by having each lane have its own speed limit, but... Imagine the Interesting signs. idea. Yeah, you'd have to build things that like are hanging over the road to make sure each lane knows what their speed limit is. But I still find people who are in the quote-unquote left lane or the fast mm. lane or whatever... Just cruising along. Either cruising along or they're not doing the speed limit. Mm-hmm. Like, move over. But that's my that's the speed of me talking. Move right? over, Seabus has got that need for speed. The, the realistic me says that this might not be safe, but maybe maybe Steve's right. Maybe that data shows that it is a little safer than we expected it to be. We're gonna head to the news, and then we'll come back with more of Kitchener today on Sydney News Five Seventy. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. James Sebastian Scott filling in this afternoon. Thanks so much for taking the time to tune in to the show today. Our next topic of conversation is the power of routines. And it's kind of an interesting topic and a timely one, given that my routine today was thrown out of all kinds of sorts. And not just because I have to host the show that I don't normally do on a day-to-day basis, but also because I have a newborn at home, two weeks old, and what comes with a newborn? Your routine getting thrown to hell. And joining us on the show today is Helen Fishburn, the CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association of Waterloo-Wellington. Helen, thanks so much for taking the time today. Uh, hi, James. Nice to talk to you. Congratulations on your newborn. That is amazing news. Thanks thanks very much. I appreciate you saying that, uh, Helen. It's uh, definitely thrown my routine out of sorts, for sure, <laughs> as you might understand, yeah. In the best way possible, of that's, course. That's it, yeah. I, I don't have much to complain about. He is a good sleeper, so uh, I, I am lucky in that sense, so... Uh, I, sh- I guess I shouldn't complain too much, right? Well, uh, <laughs> it's it's a very joyful change in your routine, but certainly, I mean, it, it is part of life, right? Your sleep patterns are out the window. There's things that you can't control, most of which is, you know, having a newborn. Lots of parallels to what we've been through for the last two years. Right, and then you throw in the fact that I al- already have a toddler at home who is full of energy, and... You know, the routine goes out the window, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so, Helen, thanks uh, thanks again for joining us. So when it comes to routines, and, and we talked a little bit about my personal routine getting thrown out for a loop a little bit here, uh, but, but what is kind of the importance of having a daily routine, not just through the pandemic, but, but in, in normal day-to-day life? How, how is that important for our mental health? Yeah, routines are really important and sometimes actually uh, underestimated. And I think we've really learned that uh, through the pandemic. Uh, You know, when you think about prior to the pandemic, many of us complained, James, about having too much in our schedules, right? We were packed with work commitments, social engagements, sporting events, 
school-based activities with the kids, we were likely overscheduled, to be honest. And then, of course, uh, the pandemic hit, and our life went completely uh, out of routine, out of structure, out of the calendar, into total isolation. Uh, so after two years of isolation and lack of consistency, no control over a lot of, in, of what's in our environment, and of course, a loss of many of the things that bring us joy in life, most of us are now really yearning for something to put back into our calendar so that we can plan and, and have that to look forward to. So certainly, you know, we have kind of a new appreciation for a routine and, and what it means to us now not having had it. And certainly, it can help us cope with change and create healthy habits and improve our interpersonal relationships. And actually, science tells us it helps reduce stress. Uh, so when it comes to uh, you, you saying that, you know, we were probably overscheduled at one point, uh, how do we go about not getting back to overscheduling ourselves, but also being able to kind of have a fulfilling schedule that has time for everything and, and not just, you know, going from one thing to another and boom, 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 everything has to be done now? Yeah, that's a really good question, James, and it's going to be uh, a very individual response to that, right? Because there are people that, you know, I think we're all adjusting to this new reality as we shift from a pandemic to an endemic, right? We're all in a state of transition right now. Everybody's calendar looks a bit different. There are some people like right now that can't wait to get back to the social circuit and to do all the things that they love to do, go to the gym, see friends, go out to restaurants. And there's other people that are still struggling. They're nervous, they're anxious, you know, COVID is still a part of our community. We know the transmission is still quite high out there. So people, some people are actually not wanting to leave their homes. So we're having to find that balance between, you know, not overscheduling and easing back into this new world of ours again and finding that routine and finding that balance. And I would say uh, it's really simple things, right, that, that can be helpful, even if you're at home, even if you're not feeling comfortable to go out right now, which is okay. We, we still want people to keep working at it and do baby steps, but routines definitely can create that positive level of stress that keeps us focused and can certainly avoid some of those depression and anxiety feelings that many people are experiencing right now. Um, and simple things, right? So waking up at the same time, uh, showering, dressing like you were going to go out, even if you're not, eating meals at regular times, kind of watching and limiting how much social media and TV that you've got, going to bed at each time, trying to keep that sleep hygiene well. And of course, exercise is a really important way to manage some of the feelings that we have right now uh, through this transition to James. When it comes to the work that you do, Helen, uh, and and the people that you serve, uh, what has been the biggest, I suppose, impact that you've seen uh, from 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 your clients when it when it comes to them being impacted by a lack of schedule or or you know uh, trying to adjust to uh, that balance that we talked about? Well, it it really has been uh, quite a remarkable time for us in mental health and addictions over the past two years. Uh, and, you know, we certainly talked about this for the uh, quite a bit, but the baseline really of what we've experienced in mental health has totally shifted, right? That one in five Canadians that we used to talk about with a diagnosable mental health condition that used to be the people to reach out to us at Here 24-7 and seek services through mental health and addiction providers, that has completely changed now, James, because everyone has experienced a disruption, distress, 
They've been profoundly discouraged and overwhelmed at various parts in this pandemic, particularly when the waves were really quite high and unexpected, like Omicron. So the baseline is very different. All of us now have to adjust to this new way of living. And of course, those people that struggled before the pandemic are struggling even more. You know, they're complex, they're vulnerable, they're frail, and uh, they need more help and more assistance. But certainly the folks that we have seen, and you know, we've got about a 40% increase in our Here 24-7 volumes, they're, they're people who've never had to reach out to us before. They've never experienced this kind of anxiety, this kind of worry. And those are the folks that we're talking to for the first time as they're managing, you know, working from home, having their kids at home, schools are open, schools are closed. It's been quite a time for us uh, to manage and to to live a kind of uh, normal life, which, you know, using routines and using supports has really become a way that people have done that in a much better way. You mentioned that uh, routines help, uh, you know, uh, with our cognitive ability too, to, to be able to, uh, you know, have, uh, you know, uh, something that we can look forward to or something that we can, you know, I, I suppose, uh, uh, really put ourselves into a good mind frame uh, when it comes to our daily lives. So uh, when, it, when it comes to how we don't over-program ourselves is there any tips that that you have for uh, people who might be listening about you know you know I want to do more things uh, with with the time that I have, but I don't want to go back to kind of over programming myself. Yeah, and actually creating a calendar or a routine for yourself where you're doing that and monitoring that is probably the most helpful thing that you can do. So use your Outlook calendar or you know get yourself a day timer. And write actually out uh, some some routines, and don't uh, set yourself up for for failure. Right? Sometimes we can uh, be very hard on ourselves. Um, you know, this is just something that we want. Uh, you know, making changes like this can be hard sometimes. But a few small things uh, that you can give yourself some goals to work on is really, really important. So if you're actually trying to create a balanced uh, routine for yourself, create that calendar for yourself. Try it out for a week. See how you do. Make some adjustments. Uh, And don't be too hard on yourself, right? Uh, Nobody is perfect. If you miss a day or you don't quite get it right, try again the next day. Uh, You know, it's kind of one of those live and learn things uh, that we're constantly managing and, and trying to figure out what we need. And the world is constantly changing around us. That's the other thing. Uh, so, you know, what we're doing now is very different than what we were doing a month ago because there's been an easing of public health restrictions. There's a lot more things that we can do now. And again, based on your own level of anxiety, your own level of worry, and what the needs are in your own life, you know, James, for you, having a newborn and a toddler is going to be very different for me as my kids are 25 and 23. So, you know, my life and my routines are going to look very different than yours. Uh, And that's why it's really important for each of us to say, okay, we work long hours, we take care of our family. What can we do for ourselves? What are ways that we can release some of that anxiety and that worry that we're carrying and actually get back to enjoying and getting some uh, real joy and pleasure from life again, which is so important. 
Uh, when it has come to uh, the easing of restrictions that you mentioned there, Helen, about uh, the, the the calls that I, I suppose that you're getting uh, at CMHA Waterloo Wellington, uh, have have there been uh, a lot of calls about specifically the easing of restrictions or anything of that nature uh, when it when it comes to how people feel about it or how uh, they might have more anxiety or less anxiety because of it? Uh, what are your kind of thoughts or, or what you're hearing about uh, some of those things that, that uh, you know, maybe maybe we wouldn't have any insight if we didn't talk to you? Yeah, it's, uh, I would say, James, every time there's a change uh, and a pretty big change, we definitely see uh, a spike in our call volumes as people process that information, as they try to make sense of it, and as they try to adapt and adjust uh, based on their own level of worry or anxiety and also for their kids and their aging parents as well, because we're all taking care of someone. Um, we've seen that through uh, the pandemic and, you know, all the way through the pandemic. Our call volumes kind of followed the waves. The higher the case uh, of COVID count, the higher our call volumes went and things would settle a little bit. Our, our call volumes would settle a little bit as well. Then, you know, we saw a lot of uh, concern and worry when Omicron hit us because we did not expect uh, Omicron to be here. It changed the game in terms of higher transmissibility. We had new masking guidelines. We had new testing guidelines, new isolation guidelines. There was a lot to get used to. Then, James, you'll recall that after that, we had uh, the freedom protests uh, that occurred around Ontario and around across Canada, which gained global uh, and international uh, attention. People really reacted and struggled with that. That brought out a lot of the anger and the frustration and the worry that was there right at the surface. And there was a lot of feelings about that. And then, of course, we went into from there into the Ukraine war. So a lot of uh, people incredibly triggered by the war, concerned about the graphic images of violence and pain and hardship that they're seeing on TV for the people of Ukraine and a lot of sadness and grief about that. So every time our community goes through something, whether it's uh, a war, whether it's a change of uh, the pandemic, whatever it might be, we know that people are struggling. It's been a lot of layers in the past two and a half years, James. People are tired. They're carrying a lot. They have a lot in their hearts. They have a lot in their heads that they have to process and work through. And I can honestly tell you, we are so happy when people call us. We don't care how, call, how high our call volumes are. That's why we're here. And we want people to reach out to us, to work through those feelings, and to not sit with it in silence and be alone with it. Um, so we really continue to encourage people to reach out to us. What are some of the strategies, Helen, uh, do do? CMHA offer when it comes to processing and dealing with some of those feelings that people might call you uh, with to help deal with, uh, you know, anything uh, that they're feeling at the time that they make that call? Well, there's a lot that people can do. Uh, And sometimes when you're in that state of anxiety or worry, you don't always see it. And there's simple things, right? I'll just give you an example, journaling. Uh, Journaling can be an excellent way to channel uh, some of that fear that you have around, uh, you know, not having uh, any predictability. Um, It allow, you know, journaling kind of allows you to express that anxiety uh, and it's a great way to establish a regular schedule, especially uh, for those struggling with anxiety and depression as well. 
Um, that's just one small thing. Uh, meditation and mindfulness is another way. And again, you can do a lot of these things at your home. We have some online programs, uh, a program called Bounce Back, for example, that gives you a workbook that you work through uh, and identify a goal for yourself. It might be to sleep better. It might be to reduce your drinking. It might be to reach, you know, learn to reach out to people more often and to create a better social uh, network. And then uh, you have a workbook and a phone coach uh, that you get to work through this uh, workbook as well. So there's all kinds of things that we can help people with. It really just does depend on what fits best for them. You know, everyone's a little bit different. We have you know extroverts that want to meet with people and they want to be seen face to face and talk through their feelings. And then we have people that are more introverts um, that like doing the self-reflection and quiet uh, reflection and meditation that seems to work better for them. That is actually the advantage of talking to one of our service coordinators at Here 24-7 or finding a really good therapist for yourself through an EAP program is that you're able to kind of match your own uh, skill and your own uh, style uh, with the programs and services that are available in our community and find something that works for you. Uh, it's like when you're test driving a car, right? You don't just get into the car and the first car, you know, works for you. You have to, you have to look out there. You have to see what works for you, what your needs are, sample a couple of cars, and then find one that you think, yeah, this one's just right. Uh, and finding mental health and addiction and counseling services is just like that. Uh, Helen, thanks so much for for taking the time to uh, you know discuss why routines are so important in our daily lives and and how we can go about not over programming ourselves like we we once did. Thanks so much for doing that. Thanks, James, and best of luck to you and your newborn and, and lovely family. And I hope you get some good rest as well. Thanks, Helen. I appreciate you saying that. Uh, Helen Fishburn, the CEO of uh, the Canadian Mental Health Association of Waterloo Wellington, joining us about the importance of routines and the power of routines. And some people's routines have changed through the pandemic. Some people's routines haven't changed through the pandemics, but it's about how it can help your mental health, how it can help you feel like your daily life hasn't really changed much, even though maybe your work has changed from maybe working from home. We saw a lot of that through the pandemic as the restrictions were put in place by governments. Uh, and we saw a lot of the, the work from home happen. And we had to process that and how we could do our job still from home and how we could stay productive at home and how we can still connect with our teams from home. So there, there's a lot of things there that I think we can take away after the two years of of not having all that schedule blocks that we see in our Outlook calendars and trying to get back to some of that, but also leaving some more time to be able to not, uh, to, to enjoy other things that aren't so programmed in your life, like maybe going for a walk or uh, spending time with family or whatever the case might be. Because I think we are, as human nature or as human beings, we overprogram ourselves because we think we have this FOMO, fear of missing out, right? And we think that we have to overprogram ourselves just to have a fulfilling life. But really, we can balance that a little bit, I think. And I think we can get back to a little bit of that programming that we've 
uh, had in our lives, but also leave some more time, like Helen mentioned, uh, for ourselves as well. Uh, We'll head to a break, and then we'll come back with more of Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. James Sebastian Scott filling in this afternoon. Thanks so much to Helen Fishburn for joining us to chat about the power of routines. Some of our routines have been thrown off kilter over the last two years. Some haven't, depending on where your place of work has been. But she makes a good point about how the lack of routine could affect your mental health. It could affect... Uh, your daily life by uh, not having what you need as a personal human being to fulfill your everyday life. And, you know, some, some, some of the routines that have been scheduled have been thrown off because of self-inflicted things maybe, right? My example is that I had a newborn. So that to me is, you know, understanding that what comes with a newborn comes with you know, a routine that changes, right? So to me, that would be something that's self-inflicted on my end. But the fulfillment of raising children obviously comes with that. And that's how our our schedules have have kind of changed. And, you know, I I think we can get to a spot where we don't over-program ourselves post-pandemic and we don't have to be so attached to our schedules as we once were. And, and Helen mentioned that, that there's that balance that you have to find, right? Really interesting conversation about how important routines are. We're going to head to the news and then we'll come back with more of Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on Sydney News 570. James Sebastian Scott filling in this afternoon. Thanks so much for tuning in. And to our previous guests to the last half of the show. This next topic is a piece in the conversation about whether or not Vladimir Putin could be ousted over his Ukraine invasion and joining me on the show this afternoon to talk about that is Lisa McIntosh Sundstrom, a professor of political science at the University of British Columbia. Lisa, good afternoon. Thanks so much for joining the show. Good afternoon. Good to be with you, James. Uh, so, Lisa, uh, w- when it comes to, uh, you know, the, the the title of your piece about uh, uh, Mr. Putin being ousted over his Ukraine invasion, what, what could that actually happen? And could that be something that... Uh, it could happen through negotiation, like, uh, or, or, or how, how would something like that kind of take place? Yeah, I mean, you put your finger on one of the hardest parts of this question, which is exactly how would it happen? Um, I mean, I think there's uh, quite a small chance that this would happen, but it's still a real chance that a lot of people are talking about and 
uh, people saying that Putin is in more danger to his hold on rule today than he has been for a long, long, long time. Um, so the, the the question about how it would happen is a tricky one because he's the kind of dictator that in, in political science talk is called a personalist dictator, which is someone who holds a great deal of personal power in the system. He has only a very small circle of advisors, and those advisors are pretty much sort of hardline authoritarian types, uh, most of them from the military and the intelligence services, who are very loyal to him. So it's hard to see how they would be the source of persuading him to step down. Um, but it's, it's possible if enough people outside of that initial tight circle started to defect from what's going on. Um, but we do know that dictators of this sort are very reluctant to kind of step down voluntarily from power and resign. Uh, when it comes to um, when it comes to uh, what what the Ukrainian people are going through and 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 what the Russian people are even going through with with all the protests that we're seeing in Russia about this invasion, uh, does that speak volumes to uh, to Putin as well about how his some of his some of the people that live in Russia feel about this invasion and and would that uh, speak volumes about him maybe stepping down as leader or you know. Is this kind of an attachment to power that we're seeing from Putin that, uh, you know, he's not going to let go unless he's maybe defeated in an election or, or something of that nature? Right. So um, the piece that I had in the conversation that I, I think you're building off of is um, partly making the point that although I'm in these protests and I'm very interested, interested in protest in Russia, that is not enough to uh, sort of remove Putin from power. He would not be persuaded by hundreds of thousands, millions of people in the street to voluntarily give up power. Uh, but in fact, there aren't hundreds of thousands and millions of people in the streets because of a combination of the news that Russians are hearing and inability to access the truth about the kinds of just absolutely revolting war crimes that are going on in the country. Uh, and that combined with the amount of repression of people who do try to protest in all kinds of ways. So protests have kind of diminished over time. They've managed to get them over under control and stop um, big gatherings in the streets from taking place. But also, again, back to the, the degree of um, ultimate power in the very small circle of people who have any say in decision-making in Russia, he doesn't really care if people come out in the streets because that's not the basis of popular, sort of popular open support is not really what supports his rule anymore. You also mentioned uh, the uh, the the oligarchs as well, and and uh, you know some of the some of some of them that uh, that, that there's speculation that uh, some of the economic ones are are disgruntled uh, through uh, uh, through ousting uh, uh, Putin. So uh, do they have more say, or do the oligarchs have more say into that than the people of Russia would? And and is that kind of a dangerous thing? Yeah, so it's true. The 
kind of economic power holders, the oligarchs, as we've called them for a long time, do have more say and more chips <laughs> that they can put on the table than than average Russian people do. And there's, you know, a possibility that they could organize themselves together with part portions of the military um, and maybe portions of the FSB, intelligence, other intelligence services, and, and um, present sort of an ultimatum to Putin that he needs to step down. That's, that's a possible scenario. They, on their own, don't have a ton of uh, sway over Putin anymore. He's really closed the circle of advisors that he has so that he doesn't have um, kind of liberal-leaning people who want to see um, the economy thrive, uh, business opportunities, and so on. Those are the people who had some power at a certain point, but they've really kind of been sidelined uh, from having a lot of sway over Putin. So it, it almost seems to me that, you know, the, the power would still remain in his hands despite opposition or people opposing what's happening in Ukraine right now, uh, no matter what. Like, it, it almost seems like there's not a lot that could uh, pr- uh, prevent him from being president, you know, and uh, past the next election or even uh, getting ousted before that next election, right? It, it almost seems like that power is still strongly held within his hands, uh, despite how people and how the world feels about his invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, that's the... For those people who really want this, um, the war and the violence to end and who want less repression and more democracy in Russia, that's the frustrating part of this, is that he has successfully created a pretty tight regime that is difficult to overcome. And of course, the major opposition figure, Alexei Navalny, is in prison and he's just been given a further nine-year penal colony sentence. Um so he's sidelined as well, and all of his organization, those people have largely had to flee the country. So there isn't even really an organized opposition party that could take the place easily. So it's really, it's a pretty um, severe authoritarian regime at this point. On the other hand, yeah, there there is a small chance, and this is why people are really talking about it, that you could get... Some parts of the military in particular, although that's not traditional in Russia that you have military coups, uh, but they're facing a a difficult situation right now and they may not be happy with the way this is going down. There was a lot of speculation about the fact that the defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, disappeared from public view for almost two weeks recently. And people were really speculating about what does that mean? And we're seeing a number of different figures kind of close to the um, Siloviki groups of people who really are advising Putin, who have kind of disappeared or have been put under house arrest. And so there's these sort of signs that things are going on in the background. We don't really know what they are, but people are interpreting that as being, well, this is this is not a full crack in the regime, but it is a sign that there's some turmoil under the surface. And there's always a chance that that could lead to something. Is is a military coup even even something that that is in the realm of possibility of, of happening? Uh, you know, we've seen we've seen coups happen before and they, they haven't, you know, 
I think the last one was in Turkey and it wasn't really that successful, right? It, you know, it took over for uh, the amount of time that it did and then it kind of uh, fizzled out a little bit. So is that even something, a strong possibility that that, that could happen or it, does it all depend on how the military feels about his leadership at this point? Yeah, I think it depends on how they feel about the leadership. And I think they would need to have others on board to make it successful from security services, from, I think, also economic leadership as well to sort of make it a success. And it's, of course, not really a route to democracy per se, but it might be a way that that Putin is removed from power. Having said that, this is not a traditional way of power being turned over in Russia or the Soviet Union. And it has a lot to do with the Soviet, the way that the Soviet military was run, actually, where it was very controlled by the Communist Party. So there was sort of a lot of civilian control and dominance over the military, which is what you want to see in a democracy as well, that the civilian leadership actually give instructions to the military rather than the military calling the shots about how politics should be run. Um, So there's this tradition from the Soviet Union that the military doesn't really get involved in politics directly and certainly doesn't circumvent the leaders in power. Um, But things have changed, right, in 20 years, so 30 years since the end of the Soviet Union. So it's hard to say how this could all play out. It's clear that there is some disgruntlement, dissatisfaction, concern about Putin's level of extreme extremism in his sort of historical mission to take Ukraine and rebuild the Russian empire. Um, so it's, it's certainly the case that there are people who are concerned. The economy is in a terrible state because of the sanctions. Um, lots of people have fled the country. Um, so you need a sort of um, coming together of a number of different forces, I think, for this to to play out. The other thing, of course, that's sort of starting to develop, to develop today on the international front is that there may be some movement in diplomatic negotiations, peace talks between the Ukrainian side and the Russian side. And if that happens, um, it is possible that Putin could get some sort of a compromise and a way out of the invasion that would allow him to save face, to back off, and sort of begin to bring things back into successful order at home following that. And that could be a way for him to retain power for a while. How how confident are you, Lisa, when it comes to some those those peace discussions that you mentioned between Ukraine and Russia? Is is uh, is that typically a, a way out of something like an invasion where uh, both sides can come to an agreement despite uh, you know the the carnage that we've seen uh, over over uh, between Ukraine and Russia uh, with with the invasion that's happened? Is that something that that could? Uh, possibly make its way out of uh, and, and, and having the Russian uh, military back out and, and, and go back to Russia and out of Ukraine, despite the carnage? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it can happen in theory. It does happen um, that, that wars end through peaceful settlement at the end of them. It, it does happen. 
In this case, I've been very pessimistic because both sides seem to have some very hard lines that don't jive with one another. You know, I, I don't see how Russia is going to leave eastern Ukraine. Um, and I don't see, until recently, <laughs> I, I didn't see at all how uh, Zelensky as the head of Ukraine or the Ukrainian negotiating team would agree to letting that go uh, willingly. So I've been very pessimistic about that. But on the other hand, we're seeing kind of different statements being made by the two sides with Zelensky kind of saying they're open to the idea of declaring neutrality um, and and that they they will not um, they will not be a part of NATO or, or sort of pointing to the fact that NATO is not ready to take them and, and acquiescing to that. Um, so there's that on the Ukrainian side. And then I've seen on the Russian side, too, even some news today that they may be willing to allow, um, to be okay with Ukraine joining the EU as long as they don't join NATO. So there's signs of movement a little bit on the side. I don't know what they would agree to regarding eastern Ukraine. That seems like it's a key part of the dispute. So I'm not super super optimistic. I haven't been up to this point, but I feel like we're seeing a bit more movement now than we had seen up to this point. So it's always possible. Uh, Lisa, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to uh, give us some insight on uh, the piece that you wrote about, uh, you know, the potential of uh, uh, Putin being ousted, even though it, it might be a difficult thing to do, that, that it could be something that, that is possible. So thanks so much for taking the time to uh, discuss this on the show today. Thank you for having me. Uh, take care. Uh, that was Lisa McIntosh-Sundstrom from the University of British Columbia, professor of political science. She wrote a piece in the conversation about could Vladimir Putin be ousted over his Ukraine invasion? She mentions some of the ways that that could happen, but also mentions how hard it is for it to happen. And a military coup is a hard thing to happen. It hasn't been typically done in uh, the military getting involved in Russian politics, as, as Lisa mentioned. But that could be something that if the military grows tired of, uh, you know, doing the work that they're doing right now in the invasion of Ukraine, that they could overthrow the government, potentially. Not something that we've seen in Russian politics before, but Lisa mentions that that could be something that, that could happen. And we have Kyle on the line. Kyle, good afternoon. Good morning. Hey, uh, don't forget, I didn't forget what you did to me on the flip side a few weeks ago, hanging up on me right away. So. <laughs> It's all good. Hey, um, I, we, you said that we haven't seen this in Russian politics in a while, but we ha- we've seen it in the Soviet Union, so I don't see why it would not happen with Putin going in there. Now, here's my say. She said that, you know, there, there are peace talks between Ukraine, Ukraine and Russia and what's going on and stuff. But honestly, it's hard for me to even believe that because I heard that, you know, a month and a half ago when they said, oh, you know, Ukraine and Russia, they're gonna, they're not, there's not going to be a war and all that stuff. Then all of a sudden, next thing you know, Russia's invading Ukraine. So it's very hard to see, and I understand Western media and communist media in Russia are two different things. I watch both of it, both sides all the time, and it's like night and day what what each one's talking to. So, so in my case, it's a fifty-fifty. I don't know what's going to go on. Do they? Do I think that? Do I think that? 
they can overthrow Putin and the government if this thing doesn't go as planned. I still think he's going to be in power for the next 20 or 30 years. I, I think he's such a powerful person, and I think that we don't realize how powerful he is coming from the West, in my, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and Kyle, you know, the point about Russian politics, obviously between the Soviet Union and, and, and the state of Russia right now are, you know, they're, they're two different things, even, even though even though you can draw the parallels between the Soviet Union and Russia right now, right? So my comment on that was just in, in regards to that, um, you know, the, the times are a little different when it comes to each state, right? Um, but having, having said that, uh, I think you're right. I think, you know, um, when, when it comes to Western media versus uh, Russian media, uh, you know, the Russians are, are very good at misinformation and, and spreading it and, and, and uh, being uh, showing their side of, of what they feel like should be shown, uh, whether it's the truth or not. Right. And I think I think that's I think that's where we have to kind of be a little bit careful. Right. Okay, so here's a question for you, because I've, you know, I'm, you probably know this, but I'm Slavic background, so Slovenian background, Yugoslavic. Yep. What are your thoughts on, if I go and I say, and you could totally tell me off, I don't care, I've, I'm just talking to other friends about this, about me, if I go and I say, well, I don't really blame Putin for what's happening because NATO keeps creeping into more and more of his territory. Do you think that, like, do you understand what I'm saying? It, it seems like he's kind of being threatened in this sense that there are more and more members of, of Europe becoming part of NATO and his part, and he's kind of being more threatened about that, right? And then you got Zelensky on the other hand, really pushing for NATO to come in and and get and get in power, so that way they can. And it seems like more and people are saying that Putin wants a World War Three, but in my mind, as this war and more goes on and Zelensky's talking, I'm thinking, well, it feels like Zelensky's more pushing this World War Three than Putin is, right? So well, I just want your thoughts on that before, and then I'll let you go. Okay. Yeah, I think I think Zelensky wants to protect his people the the best way he can, right? And I think when it comes to you know the, the you could draw that narrative right about uh, him pushing NATO, but I think I think when you look at the uh, military support between uh, the Russians and the, the Ukrainians, uh, we we all know which one has a stronger military presence, right? And I think when it comes to Zelensky and the push for NATO is because he's trying to get the support of the the NATO-aligned countries, right? And I think when it comes to the diplomacy of things, why we haven't seen NATO-aligned countries come to Ukrainians' aid or, or you know, have sending all of our troops over there is because nobody wants to be the next country to have the target on their back for Russia, right? And I think that is a lot of uh, a lot of the the hesitancy for uh, a NATO-aligned country to not go about things. And I think Zelensky is pushing the NATO thing because he is trying to protect his people and trying to support it in a way uh, that that he feels is necessary. And I think that is kind of where I I see it uh but you know uh, you could say that putin feels threatened that's that's fair um but it does that justify the invasion in ukraine i i don't know right because this is something that uh like kyle mentioned that a lot of the times we we did see that there wasn't going to be an invasion and then you know it happened so i'm not i'm not sure how this ends and I'm not sure if peace talks will help it, but we'll see where it goes. We'll see where it goes. 
Uh, we have to head to the break and then come back. Uh, this is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. James Sebastian Scott filling in on the show this afternoon. My thanks to Lisa McIntosh-Sundstrom, Professor of Political Science at the University of British Columbia, for joining us for that last conversation. Up next, we will talk about a new essentials fund that gives charities more flexibility to buy basic necessities. Allison Krejci and Mike Pereira will join us uh, just after the news, uh, after 2 o'clock. Uh, this is... Kitchener today on City News 570, heading to the news and a break, and then we'll come back with more on City News Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. James Sebastian Scott filling in. Thanks very much for taking the time to tune in today. Our next topic of conversation is a new essentials fund in our region to give charities more flexibility to buy basic necessities. And joining us on the program to talk about this Essentials Fund is Allison Kretsch, a pro- project co-leader, and Mike Pereira, a committee member. Uh, Allison and Mike, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, so, Allison, I uh, suppose we'll start with you uh, when it comes to what the Essentials Fund is and why there was a need uh, to, to uh, come up with this Essentials Fund and, and, and what kind of uh, items are available in this fund for uh, charities uh, to be able to buy these basic necessities? For sure. So most of the funds that charities receive are restricted to specific programs and, and service projects and things like that. And it leaves them without uh, much money to provide their clients with everyday essential items, things like diapers, toothbrushes, bus passes, menstrual products, things like that. And sometimes they do collect these items, um, but invariably they receive too much of one thing or the wrong things or they're at the wrong time. So we, we set up the Essentials Fund, and we are currently running a campaign through to the end of April, raising money, which will then be distributed in an unrestricted grant to various charities across the Waterloo region so that they have some money on hand to purchase these types of items for their clients. Uh, and... Mike, when it comes to uh, this uh, initiative and, 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 and why you wanted to get involved, what was the biggest reason why uh, you wanted to become a committee member to, to kind of help this project along? Yeah, I've been trying uh, for years to, to find different ways to get involved uh, in supporting the community. And I think especially, you know, with everything that's been going on in the last two years, but even before that, we've seen more and more people relying on charitable organizations for support, uh, whether it's women's crisis services and helping support victims of domestic violence, the Sexual Assault Support Center, House of Friendship. All of these organizations are seeing increasing needs and demand for their services, and they're struggling to keep up. So for me, it's really about finding new and creative ways to help them meet the needs in the community. 
what is the Allison, what is the biggest uh, uh, item of need, I suppose, when it comes to uh, what our what our community is asking for or that you've seen uh, that that really kind of spoke to you uh, that that uh, was something that that, you know, you wanted to start this initiative to be able to help with that? Was there any one basic necessity need that you saw or was it several different ones? Yeah, it's, it's definitely several. I mean, when you think of everyday essentials that everyone needs, like, you know, a toothbrush or toothpaste or, you know, people need diapers for their young children or menstrual products. I mean, those are real basics and, and no one should struggle to get access to those types of items. And so that's what we're trying to do here. Just provide a little bit of assistance to some of our charitable partners within the region to ensure that their clients are well supported for some of those basic needs. And Mike, uh, same thing for you. Is is that uh, part of the reason why uh, you know you wanted to get involved in this? Was because there was a lack of uh, you know a, a lack of essentials being delivered to uh, certain parts of our community. It, is that something that kind of spoke to you? Yeah, I mean, I think in my experience talking to so many people who are doing the work on the ground, helping out, a lot of to what Allison said earlier, a lot of the money that comes in through programs, whether it's government funding or donor programs or campaigns, has restrictions about what it can be used for. So it makes it hard for them to just run out to the store and buy something uh, like menstrual products or toothbrushes or, you know, bus tickets so people can get to a job interview or get to a grocery store or something they need. That flexibility to do things in the moment that really, really help make a difference for someone isn't there. So for us, the fund is about really giving charities options to support people in the moment. So it's great if you have 100 toothbrushes, but if you need a bus ticket, that doesn't help. The fund is there to try and help give them the flexibility to respond to stuff rapidly without needing to go through a lot of approvals. Uh, Allison, the the partnership with uh, Kitchener Waterloo Community Foundation. Wh- what was the uh, the biggest uh, biggest reason why uh, you you were able to team up with uh, KWCF when it comes to uh, you know putting this program together? Yeah. So Jane Arnold, my uh, my co leader on the project, and I both have a good relationship with KWCF. So we're aware of what they do for the community and also the the platform and services that they offer. There's a few other. Um, sort of similar campaigns within the community who also run uh, via the KWCF organization. So it was just a great group to partner with, and and they've been terrific in terms of both advice and and working through us to make sure that we structured the donation page and and made sure that the information was accessible and and understandable to those who who are seeking some more information about the fund and how they can get involved. Have have they been the ones that have been able to connect you to uh, certain charities that have been looking for uh, items that they can offer to to people that that are in need, or is that kind of a collaborative effort that that you've found that uh, that that both kind of parties are working on here? Yeah, definitely collaborative. We have a great committee, um, and fortunately, our committee has their own network throughout the nonprofit and charitable sector in the region. They're they're doing their own volunteer work and their own. Um, you know, sometimes they're they're part of the board of directors, for example. So there's certainly a connection across the board as far as the committee itself, as well as our partnership with KWCF in, in terms of ensuring that we are connected with the right charitable partners, uh, understanding their needs and, and working with them to make sure that we get this uh, the fundraising dollars back out to the community in the best way. 
Uh, Mike, when it comes to working with this committee and and putting uh, you know the the brain power together to to be able to help Allison and uh, uh, and her partner uh, be able to kind of uh, get this off the ground running, what what has been the biggest uh, uh, I guess success story that you can kind of come up with when it comes to uh, what the committee has been able to do to help Allison get this started? Um, well, I mean, it's it's still uh, you know it's still ongoing. So the biggest successes I think are hopefully yet to come. But uh, for me so far, it's been great to see. I think the speed at which we've been able to gather a group of passionate people together and hit the ground running very quickly to do something that I think can have a really big impact. And I think it's for me the success is that it's showing that the community loves to to chip in and help out and find ways to do things creatively. And uh, so it's it's been awesome just to see the response so far. Allison, uh, wh- where did this idea come from uh, to be able to uh, you know put this uh, idea kind of as a thought process to something on paper to actually executing it and being able to offer it up? Uh, where did it all start for you? Yeah, I would say over the last couple of years, we've seen more requests from charitable partners for items such as these. Of course. You know, going back um, a year and, and even two into the pandemic, we saw a lot of requests for things like PPE, a lot of hygiene items and personal toiletries and things like that that were needed for long-term care centers. And so I think out of that, there's just been this renewed understanding that there's some basics that don't necessarily get the funding dollars within the nonprofit sector. And so, again, my, my, um, my colleague, uh, Jane, sort of came to me and said, hey, what do you think about this idea? And I thought it was excellent. And so the two of us sort of reached out to our own networks of, of uh, people that we knew that were already part of the nonprofit uh, community and, and willing to sort of work on a project such as this. And we quickly sort of pulled up a team and, and started tackling various things that we needed to do to get it off the ground. Uh, what were some of the biggest hurdles, I suppose, when it comes to uh, getting the idea off of the page to, to executing it? Has there been anything that's been challenging uh, so far along the way, or has it been uh, an initiative that has been, I, I, I don't want to say easy to put together, because none, not, none of this uh, typically is easy to put together, but has it, has it been something that, that you have found that there has been very little hurdles to, co- to overcome? Yeah, we've had a great team and a team with a wide variety of experience and, and expertise. So I think we had the right people come come together to figure it all out. We have had some great help from the team at Vidyard on the social media and things like logo design and things like that. So so they've been really helpful on, on I would say, the social media front that is a little bit less known to, to the committee members. But we figured that out in, in conjunction with them and... Uh, and we're we're active on the social platforms, and hope, hopefully we're getting the message out uh, via those those platforms. Uh, Allison and Mike, thanks so much for taking the time today to uh, talk about the Essentials Fund, and uh, and hopefully uh, you're able to uh, you have some success with this, and and be able to offer those basic necessities to uh, the charities and and the people that need them the most. So thanks for taking the time. Thanks so much, and you can reach us at kwcf.ca/essentialsfund. Excellent. Thanks so much, Allison and Mike, uh, joining us on the show today to talk about the Essentials Fund. Uh, Allison Kretsch, uh, the project co-leader, and Mike Pereira, committee member, uh, talking about the Essentials Fund that gives uh, charities more flexibility to buy basic necessities. Uh, and, you know, uh, something that charities have said that they uh, have needed to kind of 
have a variety of things to offer uh, and not just like Mike mentioned, if you have a hundred toothbrushes, well, it doesn't help you if you need a bus ticket, right? So it's a variety of different things that uh, these charities can offer to people who need it the most. And they are looking to help uh, those people and those charities out the most uh, with this new fund. So uh, that was Allison Kretsch and Mike Pereira talking about the Essentials Fund. Uh, we'll head to a break and then we'll come back with more of Kitchener Today on City News 570. That flexibility to do things in the moment that really, really help make a difference for someone isn't there. So for us, the fund is about really giving charities options to support people in the moment. It's great if you have 100 toothbrushes, but if you need a bus ticket, that doesn't help. The fund is there to try and help give them the flexibility to respond to stuff rapidly without needing to go through a lot of approval. That was Mike Pereira, a committee member of the Essentials Fund. Where its mission is to aim to give charities more flexibility to buy basic necessities and to offer it to those who need it the most. And it's a variety of different items, as Allison Kretsch, the project co-lead, mentioned. Uh, Mike, in that last clip, mentioned that, you know, toothbrushes, bus tickets, all, all these sorts of things that uh, people would need uh, is available through those funds. So th- that is uh, the essentials fund that uh, we talked about that will give uh, charities that flexibility to, to be able to offer those to those who need it the most. My thanks to the two of them for joining the show uh, this afternoon and talking about that fund, which I think is important that uh, we're able to uh, we have a community that's able to put ideas together uh, through concept on paper and then be able to uh, put it all together. Uh, so that is, uh, you can find that out at kwcf.ca slash essentials fund. And um, that's where you can find out more details about what they're working on and how you can donate. kwcf.ca slash Essentials Fund. Now, there's one thing that I wanted to mention on the show today that I think some as some people have overlooked, maybe, if you're a sports fan. And it's our men's national soccer team qualifying for the World Cup. However, the thing that I wanted to talk about isn't that they qualified. It's great that they qualified. Obviously, we want to have pride in our country on the world stage in these sporting events to be able to qualify. But there was one comment that was made on one of the broadcasts of the, of the game where Kyle Laren was called the greatest goal scorer of all time in Canadian soccer history. Oh, sorry, what's that? Christine St. Clair's here. She wants to... I'm just kidding. She's not going to dispute that. But Christine St. Clair is the one that has scored the most goals in Canadian soccer history when it comes to representing them on the national stage. And I saw a lot of her teammates sticking up for her after that comment was made. And in in the heat of the moment, I think... Uh, I think the broadcaster might have not realized how he said it. 
But you have to realize the accomplishments that Christine St. Clair has had on the international stage when it comes to how many goals that she scored. I believe when it comes to the goals that she has scored for our country on the national stage, it even uh, it even puts uh, Cristiano Ronaldo to shame of how many goals he scored for Portugal. Which... Speaks a lot, I think. Right? I mean, our, our Canadian women's national team won gold in the Olympics, right? And that was something that, uh, that, that that program had to work on uh, a ton to be able to accomplish that. So I, I just wanted to give those props to Christine St. Clair. Uh, because I, I saw it, I, I saw it after the game uh, the other day over the weekend, but also saw it yesterday too. I still was seeing comments about that uh, that you know people weren't were feeling that Christine St. Clair wasn't getting the recognition she deserves, and she deserves it. She one hundred percent deserves it. One of the best Canadian athletes uh, that has ever not just played the game of soccer, but ever has represented this country on the world stage. So I think you know. We have to give props where props is due. And Christine Sinclair deserves every prop for what she has done for the Canadian national women's team and that program and how it has evolved over the years because of her involvement as a player. And I will, I would assume, and I don't want to end her career before, before it, it, you know, is ended, but I would assume that she probably uh, might want to still be involved when the playing career is over in some other capacity, either as a coach or a manager or whatever the case might be. I think that would probably be a smart thing for the, the Canadian national women's team to consider uh, for her to be in a role like that. But again, just wanted to give the props to Christine St. Clara where it is due because uh, she has scored the most goals in Canadian soccer history when you look at it from that perspective of the women's team and the men's team and, and, and Kyle Laren has scored a lot of goals. Let's not, you know, let's not get crazy about that. He scored a lot of goals, but Christine St. Clair is the one that scored the most. Just want to point that out because th- there was a lot of conversation about that on social media, especially over the weekend. But I, I did see some more of it yesterday and you know, I think I think the props are are definitely deserved in that sense. Another thing, also sports related, so forgive me. I am a not only do I like news, but I like sports too. For all of you who were complaining about the NFL overtime rules, because the Buffalo Bills somehow deserved to have a possession in overtime against Kansas City in the playoffs, they didn't get one because. Uh, the Kansas City were better than them and beat their defense and scored, and then the game was over. Well, do I have news for you, Buffalo Bills, salty Buffalo Bills fans? Both teams will now have the opportunity to possess the ball in overtime in the postseason. These are new playoff overtime rules. If the score is tied after each team has possessed the ball, then the next score wins. If the team kicking off to start the overtime period scores a safety on the receiving team's initial possession, that team that kicked off is the winner. So there you go. I think all the Buffalo Bills fans who were salty about how they were eliminated from the playoffs 
can now rest easy that the rules have been changed for your liking. But when has a public outcry like that changed <laughs> a professional sports league to change our overtime rules? And if there's any fan base that could do it, it's the Buffalo Bills fan base because they are crazy. They like to put each other through tables for crying out loud on a regular game day, never mind the playoffs. Probably put each other through barbecues during the playoffs. But just wanted to point that out too. So you're welcome, salty Buffalo Bills fans. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Every Tuesday at 2.30, we take a look at a local tech startup. It's our Tuesday Tech Spotlight here on City News 570. And this week, we're talking about a company called Rideco. And I was looking around their website. It, it, it's a slightly different twist, it looks like, on the traditional ride-sharing service. And here to tell us all about it is Prem Guru Rajan, he's CEO of Ride Crew, uh, uh, sorry, Ride Co. Prem, welcome to the show. Hi, good, uh, good afternoon. I'm happy to be here. So tell us about Ride Co. Where, where did you come up with this idea? Sure, yeah. So Ride Co. offers a platform that enables cities and public transit agencies to offer something called on-demand uh, transit. And... Um, the, you know, the, the idea for RICO started um, nearly seven years ago. And it's, a, it's actually a situation that I found uh, uh, my sister was in. And it's something that we can all probably relate to. Uh, back then, my, my younger sister had just graduated from university. She was taking the uh, public bus to work every day. And she just struggled to use the bus. She, um, it involved a lot of walking mm-hmm. to get to her first bus stop. Uh, and then a transfer point. She waited at the transfer point for 15 to 20 minutes, took the transfer, got off, and then walked another um, 10 minutes to her work. And uh, the whole journey was over an hour each way with a lot of walking and waiting. Uh, and that same journey by car would have been 20 minutes. So, you know, when I first heard about this and my sister was um, complaining about this, I thought to myself, well, why is public transit so rigid and broken? Why isn't it more dynamic and adaptive? Uh, and um, and and in a way, hopefully, it can be um, more demand responsive. Uh, so that's where the idea came about. Uh, and the gist of it is, um, we have a software platform that enables an agency um, to run buses on a dynamic route. Mm-hmm. They no longer have a fixed route, right? Using an app, you can book a ride. The app will tell you which bus stop to go to, and uh, when you'll be picked up. And you can track your vehicle on your app. And the bus will come and pick you up. You get on the vehicle. You're sharing a ride with other people, but the bus's route is dynamic, and it goes and picks up other people. It's a dynamic route created for the people that have booked their ride, uh, and it drops you off at or close to your destination. So it's, it's in a way, it's a dynamic bus, and it's the future. So what kind of vehicles are we talking about here? Are we talking like full-size city buses or minivans? or like, like What kind of vehicles are they? Uh, they're larger format vehicles. And um, our clients, the, the agencies, uh, use our platform with uh, vans, with shuttles, or, or even full-size buses. So you actually see uh, all those uh, all those scenarios. So based on how you described it, it kind of sounds like it's it's a combination between, you know, a cab which will literally pick you up at your house, and like a traditional bus stop. Uh, so, so you're saying like 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 
these stops once this this route is created would be could be anyway closer to your house than a traditional bus stop. Exactly. Yeah, it could, it's a closer stop. If you don't have a traditional bus stop, it could be a uh, a vetted safe street corner or a plaza that you can walk to safely to get picked up. Uh, and yes, it's closer, so it's less walking. And also, it uh, reduces transfers, so it can take you to your destination. Sometimes the destination is a uh, is a transit hub, right? It could be an LRT station, it could be a GO train station, perhaps, or a major bus terminal. Other times, it's, you're still moving within the community. It takes you um, to a bus stop or a street corner close to your destination. But you're right; it's less walking, less transfers, fewer transfers, and and less time in transit. So how have people been responding to this? Uh, because you've been around, I think, what, for three or four years. Is this, is, would you describe this as a, as a hit? People are really liking it? Liking it? Yeah, it's a huge hit. Uh, typically, wherever we launch, um, the local community responds very well to it. Um, you know, in some communities, it's, uh, it's, it's like night and day. Uh, as an example, uh, we recently launched, uh, we helped the city of Coburg, Ontario, a small community uh, um, right by the lake. Uh, mm-hmm. We actually helped them launch on-demand transit all through the city, all through the community, and um, and and the residents loved it. There were a lot of communities that uh, did not have easy access to a bus, and now with on-demand transit, it comes right around to the you know close to their neighborhood or at their neighborhood. Uh, and so it opens up mobility for big segments of the city that were previously struggling to access transit. And it's not just Coburg; we we repeated that success story in different communities. Uh, we're doing it now in Guelph, um, and. Uh, and um, and you know various communities around uh, in Alberta, um, we're doing it in several communities in, in Calgary, um, in small communities around Calgary, uh, like Cochrane, Leduc. Um, so yeah, so we're delivering huge impact to the uh, the communities where we're operating. Does this have the possibility? You think maybe of maybe at least in those smaller communities that might have a very limited transit system to maybe even replace the transit system that's there at least or at least be more effective uh yeah so for the very small communities uh you're right so if you look at a a small community like Coburg or Cochrane where the population is perhaps 50,000 or less than Mm 50,000 they don't have uh dense downtown or arterial corridors uh then in cases like that yes we pretty we pretty much cover the whole city with on-demand transit they're they're Maybe it's not a fixed route um, anywhere. Uh, but in bigger cities, um, you know, you start going to a place like Toronto or Waterloo, like where uh, what you typically see is a mix of the two. Um, so San Antonio is a great example. We've had a massive success story. A city of San Antonio is one of the largest cities in, in North America. Mm-hmm. And they continue to have fixed routes um, in those arterial corridors where there's a lot of people, a lot of businesses, a lot of retail. And then a lot of the suburban communities where you have uh, you know, um, homes and you have smaller businesses or offices, uh, that's where they deploy on-demand transit. So in, in the bigger cities, it actually works hand-in-hand with the fixed route. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, some cases actually complement it because it makes fixed route more accessible to people by solving the first last mile access gap. So I'm a, are you operating in Waterloo Region? I would assume so. Uh, we're not, uh, no, we're not yet operating in the Waterloo region. Okay. I know the Waterloo region is looking at on-demand transit. We're not operating here right now. Uh, but we are operating in, uh, I would say, about 15 uh, cities across Canada. We are the largest largest provider of on-demand transit systems in Canada. Okay. And, and growing uh, quite fast. So are there employment opportunities for those who want to drive? Because if someone needs to drive these routes, right? 
Yeah, so it's um, it's not like ride hailing or taxis in that sense where people bring their own vehicle. Um, typically, the vehicles are uh, owned by the city, right? Mm-hmm. They're usually city-owned shuttles or vans or, or buses, or it could be a private fleet operator. Uh, sometimes you know, cities will actually contract with the private sector fleet operator to run shuttles, uh, like they do, for example, in Waterloo with their paratransit system. And uh, so, yes, there's opportunities um, in the sense that we're providing transit in more areas and areas that are uh, underserved by transit, and that creates opportunities for, for drivers to be a part of the transit system. Um, so in that sense, yes. Uh, and, and we're also creating opportunities in general because by plugging people into the general fabric, fabric of society, we're encouraging more mobility, encouraging more retail. Um, so the, the bigger picture views, we're encouraging economic activity and uh, movement within the community and, and driving longer-term economic development. And where can people find out more information about RideCo? Uh, they can go to our website, rideco.com, R-I-D-E-C-O.com. Uh, and the great thing is, um, you know, we're a part of the tech community here in Waterloo, so we're hiring for lots of engineers, uh, lots of uh, technical people, analysts, project managers. Um, yeah, so if uh, folks are interested in learning about our mission, uh, maybe joining us in, in delivering this uh, type of innovation to communities uh, around the world, we'd love to have you uh, on our team. All right, great. Thanks very much, Prem. Thank you, Polly. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Uh, Prem Guru Rajan, he is CEO of RideCo. And it sounds like a very interesting scenario. Now, I, I, I didn't ask, I remember this maybe a couple of years ago, Mike Farwell had somebody on his show, and may, maybe it was RideCo. I'd have to go back and, and check, but there, there was kind of a private transit experiment that was being tried in Belleville, Ontario, in, uh, in in eastern Ontario. And I didn't see whether or not that was successful because we talked about them at the beginning. But, you know, this is an interesting idea. It's, it's, it's kind of halfway between, you know, a taxi or an Uber or a Lyft and a city bus. So they, you know, people who are interested in going places, they kind of create a route based on where people want to go that day. So the route could change every day because depends on whether or not people are going from one part of the city to another. Sounds like a really interesting idea. And, uh, of course, we wish them all the success. Uh, RideCo, uh, you know, based, based right here in Waterloo Region, very, very cool. We'll be back to wrap things up on Kitchener Today on City News 570. Tuesday Tech Spotlight that was a previous segment that producer Polly had last week, I believe, talking about RideCo on the Tuesday Tech Spotlight. So my thanks for Polly for taking that last 15 minutes off my plate there. We were supposed to have a live guest, but didn't happen today. So we aired RideCo in its place. 
which is an interesting initiative, as producer Polly was able to pull out of our guest, Prem, the CEO of Rideco, in that last segment. And thanks to all of our guests who were on the show today. Lots of compelling and interesting topics that we talked about. The power of routines. That was a good conversation with the Canadian Mental Health Association of Waterloo-Wellington. The Give 30 campaign. And the 1950 murals that left out a big chunk of our history in Waterloo Region. That an exhibit will now be featured sometime in the fall with those murals from the 1950s artists that created them. But it left out the Indigenous perspective, or mostly left out the Indigenous uh, perspective and and had the settlers' perspective. So that exhibit is coming to the Ken Sealing Regional Museum. Hopefully sometime in the fall you can check that out. And there's still a lot to be figured out, as our guest said. Susan Nalin said there's a lot of stuff to still be figured out on how that exhibit is going to look and how it can be more inclusive to the Indigenous community so that everyone can enjoy it. Uh, So my thanks to all of our guests on the show today uh, with the conversations that we've had. The conversation we had about the power of routines, that was an interesting uh, topic of conversation and that I just kind of want to revisit because I think think when it comes to how we live our lives, we live it in our own kind of bubble, right? I mean, I, I know, I know I do, uh, but we really, really overprogram ourselves sometimes to the point of exhaustion, to the point of maybe leaving out something that's important that's happening on the home front. The only thing that I can say is that sometimes we need that break, right? We need that break from a work phone. We need that break from our daily jobs. We need that break. And it's okay. It's okay that we have to divide our time in that sense. A a lot of people are really good at dividing their time. A lot of people need to do better. I'm one of those people that need to do better, I'll be honest. Not exactly my strong suit when it comes to dividing my time. Because what I do for a living and what many people how many people feel in the industry that I'm in, in radio broadcasting, journalism, that sort of thing, is that you always have to be plugged in. And it's hard to unplug. And I'm at fault for that too. So still trying to do better, trying to get get those tips that Helen Fishburne gave to me to put into my routine because obviously my my home front has changed drastically over the last two weeks but we're getting there we're getting there it's something that I think we all can do a little bit better of to make sure that you know we're not just so focused on the program that we set for ourselves the calendar that we set for ourselves 
But I like being busy. I don't know about you. I like being busy. Because if I have that sense where my mind can wander, sometimes not good for me. <laughs> sometimes not good for me. I do have hobbies at home that, you know, that I, I, I try and uh, put into my routine. Like watching sports at night. I, I think that's very therapeutic for me. I like watching sports. I like disconnecting from the news cycle in that way by paying attention to something else that requires some time away from family or whatever the case might be. But it's something that can be put in the background easily and you can kind of multitask a little bit, right? But it gives me something to focus on or something that keeps my mind, you know, keeps my mind busy so it doesn't it doesn't wander. I'm I'm one of those people like honest to goodness, I am one I've always been a person that is like a squirrel, right? Like it's it's hard for me to stay focused on one thing or it's hard for me to not be doing something because I just I don't like that feeling of of not I don't know, not really accomplishing anything, I guess. I don't know. Ever since I was a kid, I've always been a busy person. Like I've always been preoccupied with something, whether it's, you know, uh, like I mentioned my love for, uh, I mentioned my love for um, dirt bikes and snowmobiles in my upbringing previously. And that has kept me busy. And outdoors, goodness, we can all get outdoors a little bit more. But... I don't have those things when I'm living in Southwestern Ontario that is not in a rural area. Because when I lived in rural Manitoba, gosh darn, I was always on those things. Always loved just riding down the Red River in Manitoba on my snowmobile. We got Bob on the line. Bob, good afternoon. Hey, Bob. Let's talk about the weather. <laughs> hey, Bob. Hey, how you doing, brother? I'm good. How are you? Oh, better, better. You know, I like this with the three of you, you guys there, the producers three. I think that's good. Yeah? You yeah, like you that? You guys talk about everything and anything, and you never know what you're going to get, you know? <laughs> like I like to keep you box. on your toes, Bob. Oh, yeah. It's like the, that big box of bits and bites, you know? <laughs> you stick your hand in there, it's a whole new ball game. <laughs> this show is like a box of chocolates. You never know oh, what you're going to get. You got that right. That's How's what that? I like about it, you know? That way, <laughs> there's not just one star power getting all the money, you know? So <laughs> if we could get those jackholes upstairs, you know, to spread that star money amongst you three, you know, the producers three. From 12 to 3. I think that's great. Listen, Bob, we work in radio, so I don't know what kind of pot of money that you're talking about, but... <laughs> well, it might not be a whole lot, you know, but that's the, the difference between the star star money and the producer's money, you know. You there guys you can split it up between the three of you. Uh, and that way, there's no more stars, right? No more big heads <laughs> out there. And Producer's three, that's what we need, because every day is different. I there like you go. that. All right, Bob. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for commenting on that. I appreciate you... Uh, uh, to, tuning in to all of our shows. Appreciate that. There's been some variety over the last month. I'm not going to lie, right? There's been some variety. So thanks to Bob for tuning in to that variety. And we've changed your routine a little bit when it comes to that, right? Talking about routines, that's a nice tie in there. So 
the other thing about routines that I I really like is that it doesn't just keep me focused, but it, it makes me be able to, I don't know, feel like, I guess, I guess it always comes back to feeling like you accomplished something, right, with a routine. Hell, my weekends, though, there's no routine, right? There's no routine on weekends, none of that. I don't got time for routine on weekends. Those are when I sip my coffee and sit on the couch, read a book maybe, watch some TV with, with the kids, you know, th- those sorts of things. Go outside with the kids, go for a walk. It's all sporadic. It's not really a routine, but my Monday to Friday there. But it's so hard these days to just keep like a solid, solid routine. But I like to keep my mind sharp and focused. Speaking about routine, coming up on the afternoon news at 3 o'clock, we'll have Aaron and Paul take things over at 3 o'clock, but also the Leafs are playing the Bruins tonight. And when, when it comes to the Toronto Maple Leafs playing the Boston Bruins, we know there's six, lack of success with the, against that team, right? And Boston, I think, has won eight of the last 10 games. Yeah. Good luck, Toronto. And I'm a Leafs fan. Listen, I'm a Leafs fan. But you can catch that game right here on Sydney News 570 as well later tonight. And hope to God that the Toronto Maple Leafs are able to beat up the Boston Bruins. And you know what? Paul McPhee is probably listening to this and probably like, what the heck is this guy saying? I'm a Boston Bruins fan. I don't care, Paul. I hope your team loses. Hope your team loses. Because we, we all know that if these two teams meet up in the playoffs, that the Leafs are out in round one. Like, we know the history of that, right? We, this, is, this is the routine of being a Leafs fan. How's this? Another nice tie into that, that topic. The routine of being a Leafs fan is this. You start the season off fairly strong. You get to Christmas. You're feeling really good about the team. And then between January and March, they go on a nosedive a little bit. Then... They come back from that nosedive. They start winning some games again, and they get to the playoffs. And all that work all season, out in the first round, seven games. They at least give us seven games in the playoffs. Always out in the first round, though. I I don't know how to fix that. They got to fix their routine. How's that? They got to talk to Helen Fishburne, CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association of Waterloo Wellington. Maybe she can fix the lease for me. Who knows? I don't know if they're fixable, though. Jordan's laughing in there at me, producer Jordan, <laughs> laughing at me for trying to figure out a way on how to fix the lease routine in the playoffs. I don't know if there is a way. Yeah, see, I was kind of figuring that you're going to lean that way, Jordan. Anyways, thanks to everyone on the show who joined us to talk about these topics. And we'll have more of Kitchener today tomorrow. And then the Mike Farwell Show coming up at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning as well. Uh, We have the afternoon news next with Paul and Aaron. Thanks so much for listening. This is Sydney News 570.